From South Africa to India to the offices of Lucasfilm in San Francisco, the second volume of Visions is finally here. Stay tuned for our discussion about the latest installment into the Visions series. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about Visions Volume 2 going through the episodes. I'm so excited. I love Visions so, so much. We both do. And when they announced that they were doing Volume 2, it was so exciting. And I remember thinking, actually, I was so excited and surprised that it was coming so soon. Like they announced Mm -hmm. it at Celebration 2022. And I kind of thought it would be another year, two years at least before we got it. And it was really just a year. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) And here we are. Yeah. I think that the way... I'm not saying that the animation studios didn't put a ton of time in that into this because I think they did. But the fact that everyone was working on a short concurrently, Mm -hmm. I think that all ends up being nine whole episodes. It's not like one studio made nine whole episodes themselves. They each made a short. So I think that it actually makes the production times of a series as a whole less. But I also think that they were probably working on it or like sowing the seeds a little bit Mm -hmm. when we were watching volume one. (laughs) So I, I hope that they're sowing the seeds for volume three. I, this was so good. And I, I think Caitlin and I just are so obsessed with the concept of Star Wars visions and, it's just such a joy to be able to watch this wild, weird, beautiful animation series. So I don't know. It's just, it's the best. And this is also, I have to say, our 300th Sky Talkers episode, which is so crazy. (laughs) It's like insane. I can't remember when our 200th episode was, but our 100th episode was when we did our first live show at Star Wars Celebration Chicago in 2019. So our 300th, Yes, that happened. <laughs> yeah, we're here. We've made it. <laughs> We've made it. Here's to 300 more. It's crazy. Yeah, I am i can't believe we've made it to this milestone. It seems kind of impossible, but here we are. Here we are. And the fact that it's a Visions episode just makes it super special, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm so ready to talk about these episodes. When we covered Volume 1, we decided to not cover it by episode, it like go episode by episode. We decided to go by visuals and theme and breadth of play, which is how we're going to be organizing this episode of Sky Talkers. But before we go into that, we did do a roundtable interview with the director of The Short Sith that I'll upload soon. It was a great discussion and it was so great to talk with Rodrigo Blas from Algiri Studios and it was a really fun roundtable. So I'll upload that in a couple of days. I honestly wanted this to be our 300th episode. So <laughs> I, that's why I'm sort of sitting on that a little bit. But that was really fun. Caitlin couldn't make it. But it was it went off without a hitch. And it was very early in the morning with the Spain time. But it was great. <laughs> and I think something that we also wanted to talk about and note that if anyone is listening to this right now who has just watched the animated shorts, 
There are also incredible behind the scenes features on Disney Plus, which is sort of very rare these days. <laughs> and they are so good, right? Yeah, no, they're incredible. I They have them for volume one. And I'm so glad that they did them for each studio here in volume two. They're in the extras tab on Disney Plus. And there's even um, there's one that's kind of like about the whole project in general. And then there's uh, one for each episode. So you should absolutely go and listen to them. They cover so much in each of those uh, behind the scenes features from the development to the music. All of them kind of touch on the music development, actually, which I think was great to the art, the artistic style, the production, just, just all of it. It's really good. Go and watch it. Yeah. And they're all only about like 10 minutes each, just Mm -hmm. like the shorts are, but they really pack in a lot of info and contextualize the shorts a little bit. And I really appreciate that. So I know Charlotte talked a little bit about a different parts for this episode uh, just a second ago, but uh, just to lay it out, part one, we're going to talk about visuals. In part two, we're going to be talking about themes and relationships in the shorts. And in part three, we're going to return to one of our favorite phrases, which is breadth of play. And without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Okay, welcome to part one, where we're talking all about visuals. Like we said, we had these kind of same parts when we talked about Visions Volume 1, and we wanted to keep uh, these parts, and especially part one with visuals, because I think this is something that Visions is so well known for, right, is the fact that there is such a distinct voice, a distinct visual that is brought to each of these shorts. And I think that Volume 2 really kind of pushes the boundaries even more than volume one did. And I think this is in large part to the fact that we are kind of expanding across the world to different animation studios. Um, You know, volume one was really uh, kind of marketed a lot towards the, the Japanese animation style with anime and, you know, absolutely beautiful uh, work. But I think here in volume two, to have different animation studios that are able to bring something um, even outside that kind of practice with anime and the Japanese animation style is so, so special. And there were so many interesting things happening throughout these short visually and even the way that they were created, which, you know, you get to hear a little bit more about in those behind the scenes featurettes. Uh, it really felt like we should keep this <laughs> section and kind of talk through some of the development process with some of these shorts, but then also some of the themes that were happening as far as, you know, like the use of color. I know that's something we talked a lot about with volume one, and that's something that is back in full force in volume two as well, and kind of walk through some of that. I will also add that I I think I kind of put this disclaimer in volume one too, but like, you know, like Charlotte said, we're not going through each of these shorts one by one. It'll kind of be a mix of how we're talking about them throughout these different parts. And we're definitely going to touch on all of the shorts, but I think throughout our discussion, you'll kind of inherently see which ones were our favorites just on how much we talk about them. But We did love all of Visions Volume 2, but I kind of wanted to put that disclaimer at the beginning. Yeah, I will say, I think Volume 2 is stronger than Volume 1 in a lot of ways. I think it's stronger because of the visuals Mm -hmm. and the variance that we get with all the visuals. I mean, we have stop motion (laughs) in this. I mean, so cool. And just seeing the hand-drawn animation, the computer-generated animation, the stop motion. I mean, there's just so much work that goes into all of these. And it is really incredible when you go from short to short and you get to see the differences 
in the story. And of course, the visuals inform the story in a lot of ways, but sometimes the story informs the visuals and it's really fun to think about. And it's just a joy to watch. Caitlin, what was your favorite short based off of the visuals only? Not the story, but like, what was your favorite use of the animation medium? I think it's got to be In the Stars and Aou's Song. And I think they both utilized similar methods with their animation style. This was something I thought was really interesting that they talked about in the behind the scenes features. Uh, You know, there is stop motion in I Am Your Mother, uh, but in both of the shorts, uh, In the Stars and Aou's Song, uh, they made all of the, specifically in the stars, they talk about how they made miniatures, uh, physical miniatures of basically everything from the sets and the figures. And then an animated version of that miniature was created in the computer to actually be animated. (laughs) And so it was this animation of a real life thing. And they talked about keeping those imperfections and things from the handmade miniature And they also talked about how there is this great tradition of uh, physical, practical sets and miniatures specifically in the history of Star Wars, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with listening to this. But I thought that was such a cool way to go about it. It's something I hadn't really heard a lot about before. And in Aou's song, they did something similar. uh, But I think I I could be wrong, but I think they limited it to the characters themselves. And so they had these dolls of like the father and the daughter. And I'm pretty sure uh, that the the directors actually brought them to Star Wars Celebration. I think I remember, uh, I think her name is Nadia, one of the directors. She had them on stage with her uh, during her interview portion of the Visions panel. And they said that they really wanted to make them uh, so that there was something, because those figures are made out of felt in Aou's song. And they said they wanted to to have a better idea of how like the felt hairs reacted in real life. And I don't know, there was just something about that that was so cool. And, and I think the environments for both of those shorts are so different based on the story, right? Like in the stars is a very dark story and all of the sets, you know, there's a lot of browns and grays and like dark blues and stuff in that short because, you know, the land is is dead. The planet is dead because of what the empire has done there. And even the costumes of the characters uh, are very like earth toned and things like that. Uh, But then, you know, we see in an Aou's song that it's such a beautiful, bright, colorful world uh, that you just kind of want to reach in. I mean, I'm so obsessed with their little cottage where they were having tea in the very beginning. And it was I, so I was like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of Star Wars I want to live in. <laughs> I know. I, know. I, I loved both of those shorts. And I think they had that similarity as far as the creation of the physical um, figures and sets and things like that that were then later animated. And there is such a physicality to both of them, um, you know, that I think is, is kind of similar to the stop motion physicality that we see in like, I am your mother. Uh, but there's something a little different. And yeah, I just, oh, I love them. I love them too. I think my favorite, just like you, is Aou's song. I just think the visuals are unbelievable and just so both gorgeous and cute and sweet. And I want to live in them just like you. But I think for me, Screechers Reach, I think is a really interesting use of hand-drawn animation. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I loved the feel of it. It felt very different from what I'm used to with Star Wars, but also very familiar. It's it's inspired, obviously, by the Irish landscape and 
Star Wars is very familiar with the Irish landscape mm-hmm. based off of Octo and things like that. So that felt familiar to me. But the look and the feel, I loved the beginning of that with the the workers and the factory. I just felt like it really created a world that I understood basically immediately. And I just think it's gorgeous. I love what Cartoon Saloon did with that. I think it's beautiful. I think similarly, Studio La Cachette, the French one of The Spy Dancer, I think is so gorgeous too. And I actually think that both of those are kind of similar because of the hand-drawn animation. But I think that there's just a such a clear style with all of them. Actually, I feel like all of them have a very clear style. And I love that. (laughs) Um, It's so, it's obviously so hard to pick a favorite because I think something like Sith, while maybe not my, in my top like three of the Star Wars Visions volume two, I still think that the visuals inform the story so much that it's hard to not say that the visuals in that are just unbelievable because they really are. And they're so imaginative and jump off the page. You know, I, I could watch an entire, to be honest, I could watch an entire Star Wars movie in any of these art styles. I think I, I believed it. I felt it. I just really loved each and every one of them, but I, I still think that I, I have to give props to Screechers Reach for that hand-drawn style, that sense of place, the colors, which are all those like blue greens um, and darkness. I think a lot of like grays and blacks too, which is informs the story. I think a lot in a lot of ways, given that's like a dark side story. Yeah. I think the, in the behind the scenes feature that you've talked about the, when, when uh, doll, when the whole, group of kids is in the cave too. how everything kind of switches to monochrome colors in a lot of ways and that the ink the ink was done you know on paper and then it was transferred to the computer and and animated that way but the way that the ghosts and the rocks and the mountain and all of that moves was was done very organically on paper with like water and ink and they talked a lot about that in the behind the scenes feature which I thought was so great and you can you can tell it has that quality to it when you're watching um, Screechers Reach and and that portion of the of the short and also Screechers Reach using like watercolor at the end like when they emerge from the cave and the sky is very watercolory and the landscape too it's just it was, it was beautiful. Yes. Loved it. I think you brought up Sith, and I think this is a good uh, short to talk about because I wouldn't say it's in my top three either, but you and I talked a lot about the choice to put Sith first as the very first uh, episode in volume two. And we're going to kind of talk about the order later on in part three, but I think it's worth it to talk about Sith's placement as the very first episode in volume two here in this section of visuals because Mm -hmm. there is kind of this similarity, I think, between Sith and uh, the the duel, right? I always want to call it Ronan, uh, episode mm-hmm. one. Yeah, of, because of the book. Yeah, yeah. Of episode one of, of volume one. That one was was stark as well in its in its lack of color, the black and white, and just having the red lightsabers and these, um, you know, that was so dramatic when that came out. And so to see an episode like Sith, which is also such a dramatic use of color in that short to be the first one, I... I really enjoy how there's kind of this parallel between the two of them and this really, like I said, dramatic start to the volume of visions. Because I think if you're not in the Star Wars world as much, it might 
not be as clear what visions is or even what the intent behind it is, but to see something like the duel and Sith for those to be your first introductions into the visions world are they're great kickoffs for both volumes of anything is on the table, anything and everything color can mean whatever we want it to mean. Yes. And you're in for a ride, basically. Who knows? Like, if this is where we're starting with a Star Wars that isn't completely in black and white versus a Star Wars that is uh, actively being created as the character is moving through the story and through her journey, uh, like, who knows what's to come next? I think that it makes a lot of sense for them to start with Seth in the same way that it made a lot of sense for them to start with the duel Mm -hmm. because it definitely sets the tone in terms of you just don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Because so if we're talking about the visuals, I would say that Sith has a wow factor that I'm not so sure the others do in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we start with Sith. Yeah. And I, it makes a lot of sense for me that I, we start there. I've noticed I did a lot of like searches on Twitter just to, you know, Caitlin and I got screeners of these. We watched these like a week and a half ago. We're recording this on Revenge of the Fifth right now. <laughs> and I... Something that's good about us when we get screeners and we don't record right away is like we get to understand like we were really excited to find out what people's favorites were, you know, and I did a bunch of searches before we recorded on Twitter and like around on Reddit too to see what people's favorites are. And I think we talked a lot about Caitlin and I talked a little bit about how Journey to the Dark Head is similar because it's it feels more traditionally anime, just like that we would have gotten in season one and volume one. Something that we had talked about was how potentially that would have been an interesting one to start with because of the broad story that it told that was very like Jedi, very dark and light. And how we decided like, no, that actually doesn't make sense. Because if we start with something that's like traditionally anime right after volume one, it does not set the same expectation that something like Sith would. Therefore, the thesis (laughs) statement is, therefore, I think the order makes perfect sense. I have seen some people saying that there's a lot of whiplash between, what is it? Does it go Screecher's Reach to I Am Your Mother? Right? Uh, No, it goes from In the Stars to I Am Your Mother. Okay. So it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's true, but I also feel like that's sort of very Star Wars to like... (laughs) Well, bring you through the emotional ringer and then just have like a little bit of a a joke. I don't know. Not saying that Ardman wasn't emotionally a lot because it really, it was, it was a great story and I loved it. (laughs) That's sort of the whole thing. I think uh, wasn't, wasn't Tatooine Rhapsody the second episode in volume one. It was second or third, I think. And yeah, to go from like the duel into, I can't even remember, but Tatooine Rhapsody definitely stands out in kind of the same way that I am your mother stands out so uh, whiplash we had a lot of whiplash last season too (laughs) totally just to stay on sith a little bit something that was brought up on the celebration stage was that rodrigo blas was really interested in using the colors yellow and orange and also yellow and red that is a pretty much the dominant colors in my opinion in sith and he talks about how those are very important colors in Spain. And like, clearly that's the Spanish flag. So I think that's quite cool that um, he uses those colors to convey the light side, which isn't necessarily that color palette that we would normally get in Star Wars. And I think that's a really cool flipping on its head and making it really 
culturally resonant. Yeah, I totally agree. I remember when he said that at celebration of he said the palette of red and orange to convey hope and darkness. And I think one thing I think is that the the shorts in this season I think there's a lot of that dichotomy of dark and light, um, maybe even more so than volume one. And I think that seeing it represented here in Sith, uh, like you said, of a color that we we normally associate with the dark side, but to see someone like our main character kind of actively pushing against that, pushing against following the dark path, but leaving with an understanding that darkness and light are a part of the painting and a part subsequently a part of her I think was such a great message to kind of leave the short on I think that's something all of these shorts do so well is is honestly the idea of balance uh, and the inclusion of dark and light uh, within someone and I think that using the color here like we see I I don't know if the main character has a name. I think she does in the credits, but I don't know if it's ever said in the in the short itself. But when she's trying to do this painting in the beginning and the paint droplets kind of keep changing to black around her and she's so frustrated, right? And she can't finish the painting. And uh, we kind of see the environment all around her is splattered with different colors and different degrees of unfinished, uh, an unfinished quality to it. But it's only once she kind of comes to this realization at the end of the short that she's able to finish the painting, which represents both dark and light. And she's moving to a place that is you know, a more welcoming home, hopefully for her and the world's most adorable droid, I think, in all of these shorts of E2, uh, her little droid. I friend. don't know if it's more, it's, if it's cuter than the droid that definitely looks like a dog. In that, that's so true. The slinky dog is so freaking cute. And I really love I, E2. I love him. I, me too. You know what, me you, too. You can, have the, saying... you can have the slinky dog. I'll take E2 and we'll go on a walk together with both of them. I actually <laughs> asked Rodrigo Blas about E2 mm-hmm. and I don't know. They love that droid, and so do I. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I agree. I feel like this droid is cuter, but I think there's a lot of competition for cute droids. In oh, I mean, this. pretty much all droids, once they become like a, a character in the story, are my favorite. So Same. E2, and uh, what is this linky dog? He's like Z4 Don't or something know. like that. Yeah. Uh, he's super cute too. But I, I think a lot of the design elements in Sith were really unique, uh, like E2 being one of them. This wasn't something that I necessarily picked up on when I was watching the short itself. But when you watch the behind the scenes featurette for Sith, they talk about the design of the planet. And the planet it is like a it's like a crescent moon but because it's been decimated by a meteor or an asteroid i think so it's this really barren landscape that has pretty much been like hollowed out is is kind of the vibe i got and i thought that was such a a cool inclusion like i said it wasn't something that i necessarily understood i've watched these shorts maybe about three times each over the past like week and a half so i think that sith with its design and the messages that it's conveying about color and emotion and things like that i think it's one that definitely lends itself for re-watches especially you know like when um when the main character when she leaves her her ship, her house or whatever. And everything is just kind of sketched in initially. Like there's no color. It's just kind of black lines here and there. I remember being like a little confused about, you know, are these things that 
cheese made? Is this the planet? I, I wasn't as clear. And then, of course, when she's fighting the Sith Master, you know, all the color appears around them. And the Sith Master is like, oh, so this is what you've been doing here. Even though it feels like it's kind of like her internal expression, but he's seeing it too. I don't know. I think there's something really cool about this, how maybe it's not supposed to be as clear about you know, what is her creation? What is the planet? What is she moving towards? Things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I don't know. I think the design was was really spectacular. And like I said, something that's worth multiple watches and you can kind of have very different interpretations every time you watch it. Um, additionally, yeah. E2 is great. I love his design. I love how he fits into her ship. He like kind of goes on the side and like a little ball and socket kind of vibe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's really great. It strikes me, first off, I think a lot of these vigils are really strong because all of these animation studios leaned into cultural elements from their country. And I think that's great. I love that. Um, And at this point, I would say that Aardman is its own, like it is so distinctly UK, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what I mean by that. But so when you talk about like the swords and things like that, I think that's great. Um, but the second thing that I want to talk about is returning to Sith uh, and the fact that we open with this. I think it's such a wonderful commentary about how art and the creation of art and color and like, proactivity, I guess, is an expression of the light and exploring mm-hmm. all things good. And I think that's a wonderful message to begin this volume with, right, of this concept that art is so powerful that it can blot out the dark, that it can be exploratory into all these different ways, because that's exactly what each of these, that's like the mission, the ethos of this entire project. So it really worked for me in that way because it felt really self-referential when you start to think about it a little bit, right? And then the second thing I wanted, or the third thing I wanted to talk about (laughs) is Bandits of Galak. I don't think we've talked about enough where that the visuals of that, I've seen a lot of people talk about how the animation style is, as a Star Wars fan, you might be like sort of semi-familiar with it because it does kind of look like a Clone Wars episode. Yeah. (laughs) But I think the world that they built, they basically made a planet that was India, but it still felt very Star Wars to me. And also I remember on stage, the director or producer talking about how like a whole element of it was very Indiana Jones and it totally was with, I mean, in the behind the scenes, they talk about how insane of a set piece it is to get the train, the ships running up against the train and then also like a horse situation next to the train. And yeah, that does have a very much Indiana Jones feel, but then also a Bollywood feel. And there's something so Lucasfilm obviously about Indiana Jones, but I love this like blending of, the Bollywood style that is so, uh, to me as um, an American, it's very fun. It's very colorful. And I felt that. And I loved that, that they created this world that felt very Star Wars. But visually, I felt like every sing- like all the entire part of the screen, there was something for me to look at. And there was this familiarity, I guess, because I felt like the animation style was pretty similar to the Clone Wars. And I loved that. I thought it was great. It was such a... I loved that one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the bandits of Galak because while you were talking, I was like, we got to talk about this one here in visuals too specifically. (laughs) Because for as stripped down as Sith 
can be with, you know, the entire focus on like splashes of color. The Bandits of Galak is like so detailed. It's incredible the lengths that they went to in designing this world. And the director, um, Malin Shind, uh, he talked a lot about that. And, and you kind of referenced this too about, you know, Indiana Jones meets Bollywood and like bringing India into into Star Wars. And I, I guess like a really maximalist way, almost like the way that they talked about, um, I would definitely recommend their behind the scenes feature because they talked a lot about the design and uh, a lot about the ways that they brought Indian culture into the design of everything. And something that I thought was really funny that he mentioned when he was talking about the villain in this uh, short, he talked about like the silhouettes of villains in Star Wars and about uh, in a lot of ways they're it's kind of simple in some regard because you know they're usually like all dressed in black and he said he said nothing in India is simple we make everything complex and so he talks about how they kind of kept like adding layers and layers to the villain and and the way that he has <laughs> uh, like that. yeah like accessories and things like that and uh, I thought that was such a great way to kind of talk about their approach to this short of nothing in India is simple we make everything complex because you can really see all of the layers and details that they put into this world and into the characters and into the costumes and everything like that. And I think because, you know, it, it does feel and look a lot like the Clone Wars style. Um, if you followed Clone Wars a lot, you know that the details were so hard. I mean, it's been a while since we've talked about it, but Padme didn't have a new hairstyle for like years <laughs> because they were like, it's so hard <laughs> to do it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm in the middle of a rewatch and I'm, I'm noting <laughs> and all of the costumes, like, right? Like the costumes don't like it, it's a big deal when the costumes change, and and even then, like you know, they have details. Of course, I don't want to say that, but it's sometimes, especially in early Clone Wars, some things have to be pared down, and you don't see that at all in this short. It's just over the top in such a beautiful way, like from the music to the way that the force works, the costumes, the sets, even the food, the fact that there's so much different food in this short, it's incredible. And yeah, I, this, this one I think is such a feast for the eyes and I will talk about the story later because yes, this was when I cried in cried in most going to be honest, but I cried in this one, especially. And I, I loved this one and I loved seeing the design process. And like I said, they talk about it a lot in the behind the scenes feature. So definitely uh, worth watching. Sort of funny that we have this section called visuals that we're talking about the visuals because every single one of these shorts has a distinctive visual sense and every single one is like 10 out of 10 right <laughs> so it's it's funny to like sort of through our conversation rank them a little bit when they all exceeded I I don't know if I've said this yet but I think that volume two is stronger than volume one in a lot of ways and probably because of this I know we're kind of we're I can feel us in the discussion kind of getting ready to go into the next part and we've kind of been talking about this the whole the whole episode thus far, but I think it's important here in 
uh, the visuals to talk about, you know, the fact that all of these shorts come from, you know, around the world in this case. And um, you really felt that in the behind the scenes features. And, and you had kind of said this earlier, Charlotte, about imbuing like all these these studios imbuing their culture into each of their shorts. And uh, they really talk about that in detail in the behind the scenes features. And I, I feel like I learned a lot about some of these different places. And I don't know, it was it was so great to see that the, the ways that they would bring things that are inherent to, you know, animation in their country or even just uh, motifs like visual motifs in their culture that they would bring into these shorts, you know, talking about the bandits of Galak, how a lot of the things there um, look very much like, you know, you know that this is a short from India. And even with Screechers Reach, the Irish landscape is something that is so um, iconic that you can tell that that is inspired by Ireland. And then even thinking about, um, you know, Journey to the Dark Head, they were talking about the design of the temple where our main character, Ara, is. And they were talking about how it is a shape of an octagon because in uh, in Korea, um, the octagon is a shape that was very prevalent in like historic Korean culture and it represented a connection between heaven and nature and the will of heaven to nature or to earth and that that was you know that was part of the reason that they chose the octagon shape and I don't know I, I just feel like I learned a lot from those shorts and I think that it was great to see these elements brought into all of these shorts and even you know even like with the spy dancer they talked about the architecture of France and like the Moulin Rouge and and that kind of style being brought in obviously to their cabaret in the short and I just thought it was so special and that distinction is that much more clear I think is what we're kind of getting at with volume two between these shorts because they come from such different places around the world and there's something like so special about that it really is so special uh, let's move on to talking about themes and relationships in part two. Okay, so welcome to part two where we're discussing the themes and relationships of Visions Volume 2. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, let's go through them because I think something that I want to be cognizant of is how this project is an animation project that explores the themes of Star Wars through the lens of several different filmmakers and their studios, right? And because of that, I want to identify, and I think it's important for us to identify, what themes make Star Wars Star Wars. And when we go through them, I feel like it's not just themes in these shorts, but it's themes that we can all re relate back to different stories within Star Wars. I mean, I think that's, that's myth-making. That's just the general of how it all works. But I know that the filmmakers themselves love to talk about how Star Wars Visions as a project, they didn't give that many parameters beyond the fact that it's Star Wars. And like that's sort of the PR move <laughs> that you hear about the project. But I have to think that there are some fences around the themes and the stories that we're telling, because it does have to be reflective. It does have to be poetry. It does have to rhyme. And while it can be rooted in cultural themes, I think that the, it always relates back to what we would define as that nebulous Star Wars feeling. So Caitlin and I have outlined a couple different um, themes that I think binds all of this, this whole volume together and which ones we think it qualifies. Because Star Wars isn't just a family story. It's a story of 
of oppression. It's a story of a sibling dynamic. It's a story of love. It's a story of redemption. It's all these things that we talk about on the show and we hear creators talking about all the time. It's a hero's journey. It's all these things that it fits into all these different prisms. And that's really cool. And that's why something like this project can even exist. So when we talk about these themes, I'm on a little bit of a soapbox here, but I think it's just very great that we're able to have these tell these stories through the Sorry for this, but the vision of these, <laughs> these filmmakers, but also know that these themes are inherently Star Wars. So let's go through some of them. Where do we want to start? Well, I did just want to add on to what you were saying, because I think what you were just talking about, Charlotte, was actually pretty much the crux of our whole interview with the Lucasfilm executive producers, James Jackie and Josh, the the three J's, uh, was, you know, what is it about this that is so universal that, that we can have something like Visions that still feels like Star Wars? And we actually asked them about, you know, the development of the story process, because I think, you know, once you get to know these studios, they all have a very clear mission within the studio itself, like in general, but then also something they wanted to convey through this specific Star Wars short. And um, I believe Jackie answered this question and she phrased it really well. I definitely recommend listening to her talk about it, not me. She puts it much better. Uh, But she talked about how like in the first, please go listen to our other episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She talked about how in the first meetings with these studios, she said something like, we don't even talk about like lightsabers or spaceships or anything like that. The story has to come first. The idea, the nugget of what the story is going to be. And then we kind of move from there. And I think what she was hinting at or kind of talking about was these themes that we're going to be getting into these relationships um, and, you know, these themes of oppression, social and political commentary, that these are all inherent to Star Wars. And if the studio was at that point, then it's like, yeah, of course that fits into Star Wars because that's what Star Wars is in so many ways, right? And so it's not that we're just adding like a Star Wars veneer onto a story about, you know, two siblings who lost their parent. There's something so emotional about that relationship, that type of relationship that is explored in Star Wars. And, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, here with a thousand faces, the identity of humans and like all of that, right? Like that's Star Wars at its foundation. And so, you know, having that as a starting point can only mean that, of course, it's going to fit into the Star Wars world. And now we get to like explore exactly how that's going to be. And yeah, I think, like I said, she described it really well of why these stories work and something, um, I guess before, well, I guess getting into it, uh, you know, one thing that really stood out to me in this volume was the sibling dynamics. I know we had sibling relationships in volume one, But man, the sibling relationships in volume two, they were like really getting to me. In the stars, the bandits of Galak, these killed me (laughs) (laughs) in a really good way. And, you know, thinking about that relationship to Star Wars from the studios themselves in the stars, uh, specifically one of the directors in the behind the scenes feature, he talked about the first time he saw Star Wars and how when he was a young child, his father died when he was really young. And he talks about how that gave him 
it really connected him to Luke Skywalker as a character in a really visceral way because Luke Skywalker also didn't know his father and went on this like great journey or whatever. So then to see him make a Star Wars story about two sisters who have lost their mother, it just felt like a like I could see that line and I could see how personal that story was to the director and how it translated into the story that their studio made about these two sisters and, you know, searching for not searching for their mother, but uh, kind of reclaiming that connection in a lot of ways. Yeah, I really loved that. I feel like there were you're right, sibling dynamics in volume one, but this felt so, I don't know, it just felt deeper. And in this volume, it felt so strong. In the Stars is such an emotional gut punch. And I really did feel like the the younger sister really strengthened the older sister and the older sister really strengthened the younger sister. And there was this like symbiotic relationship between them that I really felt so strongly in that, you know, 14 minutes short. It's just crazy what can be done in the short story format. And I just felt like the story really didn't make the younger sibling look like she was too naive, right? She's just young and that's how it is. But instead that like optimism and hopefulness really inspires the older sister, even though the younger sister makes mistakes. And I just think that that was really great to see and I I really loved it. I loved I love when Star Wars explores sibling dynamics, to be honest. I think it usually really works well. And it's something that I think um they should explore a little bit more, I guess. <laughs> I think that uh in a lot of ways, I think that we also need to note that it felt like it, in the Bandits and Glock, I can't remember if they explicitly say this, but it does feel like those siblings are orphaned or potentially orphaned and then also obviously and in the stars the siblings there are orphaned as well and I feel like that feels very fairy tale to me and I think that that's something that these two creators of these two shorts were really tapping into is that fairy tale nature that is very inherently Star Wars but also worldly and all over the place, right? <laughs> so um, it's not, I say inherently Star Wars, like that's the end all and be all and it's so not. But um, I think it's Star Wars, why we love it, it is it's such a prism and reflective of so many different pieces of culture. So it's so great when, and like that was one of the really great things about volume one, right? And just to kind of add on to what I was saying before about how you know, Star Wars was so inspired by Japanese culture and then it was amazing for Japan to put their stamp on Star Wars. But here we have in volume two, it takes the next step of how Star Wars inspired a lot of things in the world. But then the world is also looking upon these Star Wars stories from their own point of view and how they can deepen the themes of Star Wars that we know so well as well and tell a fairy tale story, a story of oppression, really strengthen a story of siblings like we're talking about. But yeah, it was one of my favorite aspects too, Caitlin. You know, one of the things I love specifically about these two sibling stories was, you know, you know, George Lucas always said that Star Wars is for young people and that kind of hopefulness that young people tend to have because they haven't been burned by the world yet. I think we really see that with our two younger sisters. Um, Tachina, I believe, is the younger sister in In the Stars and Ronnie is the younger sister in The Bandits of Galak. And 
Tatina, she she's such like she has such hope in the fact that her older sister like they can work together to defeat the empire. And when you hear their story about what has happened to them and to their planet, that they're the only ones that have survived this idea that they could literally face down the empire and restore their planet is absolutely insane, right? Like it's literally just the two of them on this planet and the empire has taken everything, but Tachina has such hope in in her mother's strength, right? I absolutely adored this use of the force as their mother's strength. I just, I, I don't know. I thought that was so touching and such. We, we see a lot of different metaphors for the force in, in different mediums of Star Wars, but I really, really, like there's something so emotional about these two sisters experiencing the force as their mother's strength. Oh, like really got wretched. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It really and, was. Yeah. And that moment when they're, you know, I thought the whole scene of them inside the Empire's water factory reservoir thing was very Attack of the Clones, right? But the scene where they're like on the, they're hanging on, right, to the conveyor belt or whatever, and they're leaving and Tachina like closes the door on her older sister because she's, she's going to save the day, right? It just, you, there's... I don't know. I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I just, I love that aspect of these stories of seeing these younger people have such independence and advocacy for what's going on. And I think that's a big part of the story of In the Stars, which we'll talk about too. Um, but seeing that younger sister kind of really bring that out of her older sister and the fact that it wasn't until Tachina was in, you know, life or death danger that her older sister finally was able to tap into their mother's strength and, and rescue her sister. And then together they were able to see of the planet. I think such a beautiful story. And uh, Ronnie is a little different in the Bandits of Galak. Her older brother, Taruk, has such um, like his work cut out for him and kind of keeping her <laughs> in line. I think she was such a charming character in the ways that she is like so focused on just having a good time. <laughs> and like she wants to have the candy, play the flute, you know, do their cute little, the bandits, uh, their cute little uh, handshake thing that they have. Um, what is it? The bandits ride for feast and wonder or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tachina and, and Ronnie are so different, but they do both have that kind of hopefulness for what is possible for the future. I think even looking at the end of that short and, you know, the the brother and sister are separated but ronnie has this hope that like they're going to be together again and right the, they'll come together for feasts and wonder and there was something so sweet about that ending even though it was a little bittersweet uh with them being separated but she seemed ready for this next step and i don't know i love the comparison between these these two younger sisters and and what they were able to give to their older siblings i think it also probably with everything comes back to the conversation of identity and belonging mm -hmm. that is so ever present in star wars with in the stars those two siblings the younger sister is very aware of what her mother wanted what she believed in and the older sister is hardened and is sort of like that's naivete to believe that mm -hmm. And I think by the end of it, they recognize through each other the sense of identity and belonging based off of the fact that they have that their mother's strength through each other. But they needed each other to kind of find it together. Yeah. And then I guess if we want to go back to the Bandits of Galak, 
the brother is so willing to put himself in harm's way in danger for the sister to find a sense of belonging. And that also then becomes his own identity. I don't know. I find so many stories in Star Wars was like come back to the theme of belonging and how important it is to find your own light. I, I, I think that when we talk about sibling dynamics, it's not just like, wow, that was also a story that like fits into this, this theme, this topic. It's like, why do we do it? It's because, or like, why would we explore this? It's because these siblings is particularly in the stars need to confront that they have some something inside of themselves that is hopeful. They need to continue to find that hope. And they do that through each other. And that's their belonging, right? Mm-hmm. Just like how do we keep bringing it back to like a deeper theme beyond, oh, these are two s- stories with siblings, you know? Like how do we dig a little deeper? Yeah, yeah, completely. And it's, you know, what they're able to pull from each other. I think that's such a huge Star Wars thing too of – what you can learn from someone else. And like, yeah, the hope you're able to pull from someone else in order to push you to do the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, confront the empire, whether it's go on your own path, um, you know, anything like that. Let's move into parent relationships because there there were some really strong parent relationships in volume two. Uh, we've kind of already touched on In the Stars with the mother's strength. I'll try not to cry about it again. Yes, I also cried in In the Stars. Um, but let's talk about uh, one of the standouts, I think, for this topic, which is I Am Your Mother. This one was, we've kind of talked about it as kind of quintessential UK, that humor to it. Uh, even the title of it, I Am Your Mother, uh, the director talked about, you know, the famous line in Star Wars is, I am your father, but I am your mother. <laughs> I think that just kind of sets off this uh, short for the relationship between um, the daughter is named Annie. I can't remember the mother's name, but their whole relationship and um you know, the daughter growing up and kind of entering into this new phase in life where she's embarrassed by her mother. Her mother acknowledges Mm -hmm. that she knows she's going to be embarrassed by her, but that it's okay. But I don't know. This, this one was just so charming. I loved this so much. I, this played so well at Celebration Mm -hmm. when they showed it. And I think it was a perfect choice for them to show at Celebration because of the UK studio and we're in the UK. But I love that it explores the story of the teenage embarrassment of your mom, but then how that mother-daughter relationship like still triumphs because the mother then supports the daughter no matter what, like through the hormones, through the <laughs> through the through the hardships, all of that embarrassment, this acknowledgement that it's not really that personal. It's just like a fact of growing up. And I I loved that. I felt like that was such a breath of fresh air. And I think there was a lot of talk about how the filmmaker Magda, she is a Polish immigrant. And she moved to the UK and had this feeling of like embarrassment a lot when her mother like had an accent and was different than her friends in the UK, right? And I think that experience, the immigrant experience is really an interesting prism in which you can see this 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 short. I think when it comes down to it, though, I think it's such a lovely little story that shows the relationship between a mother and daughter, which is something you just never get in Star Wars. So <laughs> it's very nice. And so what's funny about that also is that Magda acknowledges that it's not something you get in Star Wars and that you really wanted to tell a mother-daughter story. So <laughs> that was great. I really liked that sort of slight dig because we need more mother-daughter stories. But I thought that this one was perfect because they really supported each other at the end there. And I loved that. 
But then also the mother really supported the daughter despite, I don't know, the daughter being a teenager. And yeah. that's just how, how she is, you know? And then the spy dancer surprised me that it became a mother-son relationship, a parent dynamic. I did not expect that at all. And it was a major surprise for me when we came to the end that we were dealing with a mother-son situation. I don't know about you, but oh, that yeah. like really surprised me. And so we had heard before that the spy dancer was going to be inspired by Josephine Baker and the occupation of France and that sort of history. So I was expecting the spy dancer to be f fully about like getting information from the stormtroopers, but that we just found out that that was just one singular component of this entire thing. <laughs> Instead, there's another dynamic about it, which I really appreciated and I thought was really great. Yeah. The spy dancer was, was super surprising to me too. I, I think, I, I don't know if I expected it to be like a sexy story in a lot of ways because of how they described it. Right. That, you know, like Josephine yeah, I Baker. definitely did. I definitely My, did. Yeah. And, you know, they're basically seducing the stormtroopers into getting information from them about the empire, you know, for the rebellion. And so for it to become a mother-son story was such a welcome plot twist. And this story in particular, I thought about Loie is the mom and, you know, she had her son taken from her uh, by the empire. And I found myself thinking a lot about uh, Cinta in Andor. And, you know, I forget which episode it is. It's three or four when they're on Aldani and they're kind of talking through all their motivations about why they're with the rebellion. And Cinta, or Cinta doesn't say this, it's told to Cassian, but about how her entire family was like slaughtered, I think by stormtroopers or, or by the empire basically, and how revenge for her family is kind of what's pushing her uh, on this quest to join the rebellion. And it's like so personal for her. It's not comparing it to someone like Val, who, you know, she's part of Mon Mothma's family. She hasn't necessarily lost anyone uh, to the empire the way that Cinta has. Their motivations were very different. And Louis, the way that Louis talks about the rebellion in this short kind of reminded me a lot of Cinta. Like when she's talking, I think his name is John, her informant or the other guy that she's working with about, you know, we've done all this and for what? And as soon as there's a hint of it, of that being her son, or I think she thinks it's the guy who took her son from her initially, um, that's like all she's focused on. And it's clear that this has kind of been her motivation throughout her entire time working for the rebellion and getting this information is to eventually find out what happened to her son. And for him to like, you know, of all the gin joints and all the bars in the world or, you know, whatever the line is for him to come into her cabaret and, uh, you know, to find out the truth of what happened. I don't know. It was such a beautiful, moving story. And something that I think Visions does so well throughout both volumes is leaving on a bit of a bittersweet note of the continuation of the story is, uh, is felt you know, the, especially with this one, uh, the spy dancer of, I forget what the line is, but, you know, I have a way to find him and he has a way to find me now. The idea that the son who seems so entrenched in, in, in the empire would go out to find his mother now that he knows the truth. I don't know. It was, it was really touching. And the scene where he takes off his hat and you see that his, I don't, I don't know if the horns is the right word to describe them, but that yeah. they've been shorn off. Oh, like you just... 
you just to imagine. like assimilate yeah, into and wearing the eye patch. Culture, the oppressive culture is so crazy. It's so awful. And it is, it is. But I think that's that happens. I think it yeah. was a clear commentary about how an oppressive regime does have guidelines, I mm-hmm. guess, about the way people who are part of it should look. I mean, it really harkens back to like the Nazis even. And I think it's interesting that you actually make the Casablanca reference because I think that's apt given the fact that in Casablanca there are like we have a a bar. Yeah. And it is during World War II, which is what this is like inspired by in a lot of ways, the spy dancer is. And there is this like uh, sense of destiny that happens in this cabaret, in this bar, just like in Casablanca. So I think that's really interesting that you make that comment. I don't even know if you like. No, I just thought of the quote. <laughs> yeah, and it, but it, it's very yeah, it similar. Works. Wow. It's just, it was such a good, <laughs> good, good short. I really loved it. And it was just really surprising to me. And sometimes yeah. things need to be surprising. Yeah. You know, it was just such a joy as an audience member to watch that. Yeah. They talk too about how I think theirs is unique in the fact that there are no like lightsabers or force users or Jedi or anything like that in the spy dancer. It's, you know, the stormtroopers and the dancers and what comes of that. Yeah. I think we should shift a little bit to Ao's song um, in terms of the parent relationships because I think this really illustrated a great relationship between the father and the daughter. I think the relationship that we saw in Ao's song between the father and the daughter here I think was a really, just like the entire short, let's be honest, just like really lovely. Yeah. And I think by the end of it, if we want to go back to the main core theme of belonging and identity, I think by the end of it, she finds her song and realizes that that song and her her destiny, her path is away from her father. And they even talk about this in the behind the scenes documentary about how that doesn't make her father any less of a person because he's not like leaving with her <laughs> and doesn't feel this calling to leave. It's he feels a calling to mine the Kyber. That's what he's there for. But Au like f- needs to leave and become a Jedi and help the Jedi. And this concept of like, it's so hard to leave your parents and the separation, I think is a key theme again in Star Wars and like letting go and leaving, you know, and finding your own personal sense of belonging that's separate from your family. I think there's a lot of themes of separation and moving on to a different chapter and like making the choice that you think is right for you. I think that by this visions ending with our song, I think it was really hopeful and great. But I think when we talk about like the theme of separation and like moving on, we've talked about Bandits of Galak, we've talked about our song. Screechers Reach, though, I think is a little different in terms of the sense of belonging because Cartoon Saloon was trying to tell an Irish ghost story in the Star Wars sense. And in the end, we feel the sense of dread and melancholy that Dahl has chosen to leave with the Sith mother. And you can tell by that last shot that she might feel some regret a little bit. But at the same time, like, you do commend her in this weird way, at least I did, for, like, following what she thinks that she should follow and, like, separating herself from the mundanity that we see in the beginning of the that short, right? That, like, factory. It's a very interesting 
a thing that happens in your psyche when you're watching that because you wonder if that's the right choice for her or not. But um, it does like bring to mind like this concept of, I don't know, of like separation and moving beyond like your unit, right? Yeah, totally. I think that this is one of the big themes I think we both noticed in volume two was a lot of our characters make choices that send them on a new path. And there is this kind of, yeah, like we've been talking about like separation of, of people, of relationships, right? There's like a beginning, they're stepping into a new chapter. And we see that with a lot of our stories in volume two. Screechers Reach is such a great kind of diversion in what we kind of expect. You know, we see some of our characters go on to be Jedi. Uh, We see them, you know, embarking on a new path with their sibling, with their parent, fill in the blank. But Screechers Reach to have a Sith mother, played by Angelica Houston, uh, was, I didn't realize her name was Sith Mother until I saw it in the credits. And I was like, wow, wow. So cool. (laughs) The Sith Mother. What I loved, though, is Paul Young, the director, he talked about how the kids in that in that story don't have any knowledge of Jedi or Sith and kind of what decisions would you make for your life if you didn't have kind of any basis, any foundation of knowledge about these two entities, about the way that the force works of good or evil. And for Dahl, it's really clear throughout that story that she just wants to step into that new chapter. That's kind of all she wants. I love kind of the dialogue where they're all sitting around the campfire a great campfire scene to add to the Star Wars books. Um, yes. <laughs> campfire lexicon. <laughs> the, camp- <laughs> the campfire lexicon. Uh, I think I think his name is Bathon, Bython, something like that. The, the older boy that's in their group. And uh, Dahl asks him if you could just keep going, as in like leaving the factory, would you? And he responds to her of, there are worse lives, Dahl. And she responds back, there are better. And I thought that was such a perfect kind of snapshot of her point of view, her her what she was thinking in that moment, along with her with the guy. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now. But, you know, to him, he's like, there things could be much worse. And it could be, right? They could be in a much worse situation. But for Dahl, all she wants is to move into the next chapter and the hope of something more is what's pushing her forward. And for it to end with a character like the Sith mother. Ooh, chills, chills. And like you said, Charlotte, we see that sense of a moment of regret. It's not the same kind of hopefulness uh, like we see in Bandits of Galak with Ronnie, Rainey and Chiruk, where she goes into the water and with um, the older Jedi Master, there's there's a sweetness there, a hopefulness. And we don't and and with Ao's song as well. But we definitely don't get that in Screechers Reach. And it's it's really cool. Uh, I will say too, the way that they describe the Sith mother, the design of the Sith mother, basically like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing was really interesting. And I thought a great way uh, to portray kind of what the Sith mother is doing for doll. Even calling her a Sith mother is <laughs> a great kind of name for I her. Love that. Yeah, I do too. It's, it's so great because it's both Sith, we have a connotation as Star Wars fans. That's a dark side user. Someone is evil. Someone's a villain. But then mother, I think, is more affectionate. We understand the feminine attributes that go into a word like mother, Mm -hmm. right? So putting those together and like the loving attributes, right? So I feel like that it really synthesizes how 
we feel this melancholy when doll feels this call to an adventure. I think that's like, I wanted to make sure that we said those words that when we talk about like moving on to an, another chapter, we're talking about the core theme of like the hero's journey, which is the call to adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Luke Skywalker deciding to leave Tatooine. It's the whole thing. But what if Luke Skywalker left Tatooine with the Sith mother instead of Obi-Wan Kenobi? <laughs> and in a lot of ways, I think that's what Screechers Reach is sort of dealing with. Right? Yeah. And I think that I love that flipping it on its head a little bit. But then also, obviously, like, I think Auf feels this extreme call to adventure. And again, I feel like ending the volume with a song makes a lot of sense to me because it does leave on this hopeful note, this, this feeling that no, she's meant that it's bittersweet that she's leaving her father as it always is when we separate from our own parents. Right. But in, she is on her own path. And I think that's great. It's really cool that she has her, do you feel the sense of hopefulness about her own call to adventure? Yeah, I think this brings up a good point. So we have about, it, it's three stories, right, of people who leave with Force users. We have the Bandits of Galak, Ronnie leaves with the Force, the Jedi Master, Aul leaves with a Jedi Master, and Dal leaves with a Sith mother. And they all are choices that each of these characters make to move into a new chapter, right? You know, I think that a lot of times in Star Wars fandom, there's kind of this, I don't want to call it revisionist history because I don't think it is, but there's kind of this new shift of how we view the Jedi, particularly in the second trilogy, the prequel trilogy of, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of harsh how the Jedi go and take these force using children, babies really, and bring them to the temple like away from their family. And I think sometimes we can look at that with a critical eye for good reason. And I think that Star Wars is trying to explore that story as well. Um, and I hope they explore it more in the future. But I and there can be kind of a negative taint to that uh, in some ways. But I think that visions here paints it in a bit of a different picture of these children. One, they're older children. It's not like a baby. <laughs> but we see them making a decision to heed a calling, chase after a brighter life or dream about a brighter future. And they are actively a part of that decision. And I think Aoi Song is a great example of that because, you know, throughout that short, um, she doesn't speak a lot until she, you know, finds her voice at the end when she heals the Kyber throughout the entire mountain, right? But before that, she doesn't really say a lot. And her father is, uh, you know, wants to protect her and uh, is worried about what her voice can do to the Kyber. And it's clear she hasn't found her her voice, um, her independence. But it's once she finally takes that step and, you know, even when they're, um, you know, in the climax of that short, when the Jedi master asks if they can run after they've like, she saved them from falling off the mountain. And the father's like, no, we can't do that. And I was like, don't worry, I can do this. And she does it. It's like the first time we really see her confident and, you know, sure of what she's doing. And then she makes the decision to, to go with the Jedi master to heed that calling. And I don't know, I, I really liked seeing these different perspectives on going down a new path in life. Let's shift a little bit to talk about master and apprentice relationships. And before we get into that, I kind of want to ask, when we talk about master and apprentice relationships, what do we mean by it? Because Star Wars loves to talk about master and apprentices, and sometimes they fit into the category of father or like parent to child. 
And sometimes they fit into the category of mentor-mentee. And I think, like, why does Star Wars even really like this dynamic so much to the point that it trickles down into several different stories of envisions? Well, I think I think the answer to that goes back to George and that influence of not only the uh, hero with a thousand faces, but also Japanese storytelling of having that older um, mentor figure. And of course, there's that kind of figure too in the the hero with a thousand faces who's helping you through the hero's journey, but ultimately has to leave you so you can, you know, take the next steps yourself, that kind of thing. So it's very, it feels very ancient uh, to storytelling in general. And so of course, then it feels ancient to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think in a lot of ways it represents a lot of the sort of fable aspect to Star Wars yeah. in that you're supposed to learn from the story, the themes, the moral of it, right? From the older, wiser person yeah. who is your master, right? Well, there's also a balance of that, though, of learning from them, but as Yoda says, moving beyond them as yes. well. Absolutely. And I just think that this concept of learning from someone who knows different than you, I think also is sort of inherent in Star Wars visions in a lot of ways. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring this up. Because we are seeking to watch, I, I, I doubt that there is someone who's listening who is, whose identity is made up of like all nine of these different cultures, right? But if that's true, that's great. But I feel like we are learning from all these different cultures that bring to that bring their own specialty, their own history to the page, right? When we view their shorts, and I think therefore we are their the apprentice in a lot of ways as the audience, learning from them and learning from their stories that they're telling us. And I think that's why Star Wars really responds to this dynamic because that's in a lot of ways how Star Wars treats storytelling like you said when it goes back to like the the things that George was influenced by right anyway I just wanted to like level set that because I think we've talked about like master and apprentice relationships a lot recently but I really wanted to like dig into why we why Star Wars keeps returning back to them I, anyway they're throughout this entire volume so let's go through it where do you where, where should we start well, I think we should start with Journey to the Dark Head, which is one we yes. haven't talked a ton about. This one is like the quintessential. It's very, I say very Star Wars. They're all very Star Wars. I feel like you could easily kind of slot this one into canon and a lot of yeah. things would still fall into place in the Star this Wars one universe. Similar to me to Ninth Jedi mm -hmm. in volume one in just the way that it feels very mythic, very Star Wars, very yeah. canon adjacent. It's interesting how that's so. And I, like I said, I, I did some market research, if you will, about which one people <laughs> really like. And it's interesting. There's a lot of variance with this one. It's either people's number one or like last place. Oh, interesting. And I find that fascinating. To me, it's not my fave. And I'm not really ashamed to admit that. Even though I really like some of the concepts, it's just not in my top three. But people are loving it on the same level that people were loving Ninth Jedi to the point where there's a lot of chatter about like if there was one that we wanted to make into a movie, it would be this one mm. out of all of them. And I think I don't necessarily agree with that, but I feel like I've I've noticed that chatter around that, ch that, that felt, chatter on the internet. Internet that it felt necessary to mention. The electronic chatter. <laughs> Better. I 
I really liked this one. I don't know if it, it might be my third favorite. I, I really liked this one. I think because it has what you call that mythic quality. The director of this short, he talked about how he wanted to put it all the way uh, like the very foundation of the Jedi, which I think is why it would be really easy to see this, like like you said, canon adjacent. You know, talking about masters and apprentices and how learning from those who are older than us is a big piece of Star Wars, but also learning when they're wrong or learning to move beyond them. And I think that Journey to the Dark Head was a great example of that in the girl who's living in the temple, Ara, I believe her name is, but how she, even from a young age, is speaking out against the temple leaders about what, you know, what they should do with this information that they have on the stones. And the temple leader is very kind of uh, blase about it in a lot of ways of like war will come and war will go. It is the sand, you know, the cycles of time. It's always going to come back. And she's so she's so young in a lot of ways too. Of like, no, like we should do something. We should take this information to the Jedi Council. They need to know. And she does. And, you know, she goes on this adventure with Tool, who is someone who is tempted by the dark side. And she doesn't, she kind of ends up in the same place that her masters told her she would, right? She can't destroy the dark head because you can't destroy the dark side. It is always going to come back. And, uh, but she kind of comes to a new understanding at the end of it of, I needed to leave the temple. I needed to go on this journey. And now here I am with a Jedi. Uh, and we're going to, I guess, go off and do some cool stuff, have some fun adventures. <laughs> and I think that Tool kind of had a similar story in that he felt the dark side and the light side in such extremes. And the dark side, uh, the Sith master says to him at one point, you know, like, your Jedi master sent you here on purpose. And when he first said that, I was super surprised. I was like, did they just kind of sacrifice him to the dark side? Like, what's the vibe here? <laughs> Who was this Jedi council? <laughs> um, but, you know, Tool comes to understanding later that they did this on a purpose because Tool had to go through this journey. Um, he had to confront this dark side in him. And it wasn't, you know, he destroys the Sith master, but it's not about destroying himself. And again, then he's moving into this next chapter, maybe almost like a way seeker, like we see in the High Republic of going with um, Ara and they're going into a new, a new chapter together. These two young people who have a lot of hope for the future, uh, but maybe need to operate a little bit outside of, you know, the temple where she comes from and the Jedi where he comes from. Anyway, so I, I, I love the whole setup of Journey to the Dark Head. I love the way that they talk about the dark side and the light side. I thought it was really great. But a short we haven't talked about yet that is so surprising because I know it's in our top three uh, for both of us is The Pit. And yeah. it's I I think I, I just, I'm just going to say I think The Pit's my number one. <laughs> and I am so impressed by it. Yeah, it. I'm surprised we haven't talked about it yet. It's on because it. it's so it's, it's so, so singular. Like, it, it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but our main character, Crux, he kind of acts like a mentor to the little girl in the story in passing on the hope that he has that they will be rescued. And she then takes that and is able to inspire the rest of the people at the bottom of the pit in order for the people above to find them and to help rescue them. And 
uh, I think that was such a beautiful relationship. You know, I think that there are a couple of shorts in here where the voice acting really kind of shines. For me, it was In the Stars, Ao Song, and The Pit. For me, the voice direction really stood out in those three shorts. And David Diggs plays Crux in uh, The Pit. And I, I just thought he sounded like so like i felt everything he was saying in this short and the way that he talks to the little girl about you know following the light fo- telling others to follow the light which is so absolutely beautiful and um that she was able to do that that she was able to inspire other people to do that and to see a world that crux never got to see of being rescued it was just, it was such a beautiful relationship and so, so devastating, um, but so beautiful between the two of them. Yeah, completely. I think I, I was thinking about what if we go back to the concept of master and apprentice, and I know that this is sort of outside of the bounds of like the Jedi master and apprentice, right? But I think it, it falls into the passing on what you know and what you've learned. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like giving spirit, I guess. And Crux really leans on that sort of tenet that I feel like George Lucas really saw as like a North Star about like how wonderful like children's innocence is. Mm -hmm. And I think that the whole concept of follow the light, I think really plays into that and how that fully inspired a whole town to help these people. The Pit, I feel like, is just so wonderfully constructed and so well-written in its its simplicity. It's just really effective, right? It's just so effective. I agree with you about the voice acting. It's really really good. But I like how the story, when we talk about Master and Apprentice, this one feels like a little outside of the bounds of Mm -hmm. how we understand that. And I think talking about the pit kind of moves us into kind of this last broader bucket of themes for Visions Volume 2, which is that of like social and political commentary and this idea of oppression as well. I think In the Stars and the Pit are kind of the two front runners in this theme. In the Stars is about uh, Patagonia in Chile and the oppression that happened to the people that lived there. And a lot of the design of In the Stars is directly pulled from the First Nations of Patagonia. And they talk a lot about that in the behind the scenes feature, which was really great one to learn about and to see represented uh, in this short in the stars. I think, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the pit so far in this episode, and we also haven't talked about the development of the pit. This is the Lucasfilm uh, short. It was written by uh, Leandre Thomas, who I forget what his title was in Lucasfilm, but a video He worked asset. in the archives. Yeah. Yeah, archives. And he had this story. Uh, he wrote the pit and... Uh, started pitching it to like his direct manager, I think is is what it sounded like. And they loved it so much and started like kind of taking it up the ranks until it was literally like a meeting with Kathleen Kennedy, <laughs> which um, mm-hmm. Leandre talks in the feature about just how nervous he would be. And like, yeah, same. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I thought that this the story of the development of the pit was so lovely as fans of Lucasfilm. And um, there are a lot of 
people that you'll recognize in the behind the scenes feature. If you watch a lot of behind the scenes features from Star Wars and know a lot about the creators, like the cast and crew. And to see all of these people fall in love with this story that Leandre wrote and to kind of bring it all the way up to Kathleen Kennedy and for her to love it as well and say, yeah, like it's got to be in Visions, I thought was, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was it was really heartwarming. And this story, Leandre talks about, this story was kind of inspired by the events of 2020 um, and there being like a lot of social unrest in that time and, and being in lockdown and that that was a big part of, of what, inspired him for this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really good insight into the behind the scenes process of this. I find it so interesting that there's like a Lucasfilm short in this. And I think that it was a perfect decision. And I really love the partnership between the writing done in-house at Lucasfilm and then the animation being done at Dart Studios in Japan that is like an American run studio in Japan that uses all of the like artistic reverence of classic Japanese anime. And I think that's really, it's just really cool. And it feels like the right partnership, I guess. Mm -hmm. Everything about this just feels really right to me. Like we mentioned, there are two stories that really stick out in terms of like this real world oppression that is at play in a lot of ways. And that is the pit and in the stars. But the pit to me feels so um, metaphorical in a lot of ways that I just feel like I love the fact that people like really rallied around the placement of the story and we have to tell the story. And they did that. I think it's great. And at the end of it, I, I want to note that while the story is a very clear representation of oppression and definitely does come from a time of 2020, I, I, you, can, you can sense it, right? The ending is hopeful when it goes back and the... I think it's the after credit scene, right? Mm-hmm. Where it goes back and you see the artwork at the end um, that was left there by the artist, the graffiti artist there. And I think it's wonderful that just like I was talking about with Sith and how that short really opened us up into like the the breadth of what art can accomplish in terms of like seeking the light. I think the same thing can be said for the end of the pit here when we have this mural that is left over from this experience and how art persists throughout it all, including in the story, right? It's always <laughs> self-referential that way. Yeah. And even, you know, the fact that the little girl, she still has a piece of kyber crystal that yes. Crocs gave her and that she heals or activates, something like that. I think that the pit was such... I cried the most in the pit and but it also left me with such a feeling of hopefulness because right like it's it's a reflection of like 2020 and you know the Black Lives Matter movement and I think that when Crux gets to the top of the pit and he's in the city trying to ask for help and and tell people what's going on uh there was like that really cynical side of me that was like, oh, they're not like, no one's going to listen. No one's going to help them. And you feel that in the narrative Mm -hmm. and the narrative like gives in to, and I think they talk about that in the behind the scenes documentary about the sound design of that, that when Crux reaches that, that he's supposed to feel like, I don't know if they use this term, but I will like sort of an echo chamber of like everyone around him is not listening and he is super out of what he was experiencing. Like it's very different. And how do we tell that through sound? Yeah. And so therefore, yeah, as an as an audience member, like you sort of lose hope in that. And then you have that 
cynical nature of like no one's going to help him. Of course, no one's going to help these people. Yeah, and that they that people up above will want to remain retain the status quo of what life is. And they he Leandre talked about this too in the feature of the people in the pit. The lower and lower that they dig, the higher and higher the city is able to be built. And like, oh, wow, like what a gut punch. And yeah, it was just, I was kind of overwhelmed at how cynical I was about the people not listening to Crux. Because I think sometimes it can feel like that in the real world of like this uphill battle of nothing's ever going to change and will things actually get better. And for the people to come to come to the pit and kick out the empire, for them to then rescue the people, it was like... I was really overwhelmed by it. And I was like, wow, there is, it does give me hope in like humanity in general that things can get better. And that if you see someone who needs help, that people will help them. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's ultimately what we want in society and, you know, for each other. Yeah. And I feel like Star Wars oftentimes shares that Mm -hmm. sense of hopefulness, even when things are at rock bottom or all the way in a pit. Yeah. So uh, it's just a really beautiful short. And I honestly wish more people were talking about it. I I I don't get the sense a lot of people. I feel like people, not everyone has watched the entire thing. Yeah. It's like they're slowly going through it, which is fair. Totally fair. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I just want more people to love and obsess over it just like I did because I think that it was such a labor of love and I love the behind the scenes nature of it. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I really just think it's great that Lucasfilm is like, how we want to tell the story. How are we going to tell the story? I think it fits in visions. And I think it, we talked about how Journey to the Dark Head could be canon as well. I think obviously, I think the pit could be canon too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was probably made with that intention, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think even they showed in the feature of them recording the "Follow the Light" chorus of all the people in the pit, and I. The vibe I got was that Leandre's voice is also a part of that chorus of voices, which I thought was really beautiful and. Yeah, I, you know, I watched, I watched these two, um, the pit and Ao song. I finished visions before you did like a day or two. And I remember you telling me just how much you love the pit. And I was like, just wait until you watch Ao song. Cause I know it's going to be a, a battle between the two of it these. Em- <laughs> yeah. And it, and it is, yeah. it is, <laughs> it's, a, it was an emotional gut punch. I'm sure if you're listening, you also did the same thing. Yeah. And- that was a tough 30 minutes, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, are we ready to move on to part three? Yes. Let's do it. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Welcome to part three, where we're talking about the phrase breath of play. So if you're a new listener to Sky Talkers, We love to throw around the term breath of play and we first heard it from the guys who made the Lego series and they are the best. If you haven't listened to our interviews, like I'm obsessed with them. (laughs) Please go listen to our interviews. About the Lego (laughs) series because they, and they talked about how fun it was to play in the universe of Lego with Star Wars and how that the Lego comedy allows for really strong breath of play. And I say that just in context because when we talk about breadth of play, I wanted to make sure that we were defining it. 
And so I guess if you don't know what breadth is, it's openness and lack of restriction, especially on a viewpoint or interest. It's also liberality. And then obviously play, I think I would define it right in this context as the space in which an art form is explored within. So the breadth of play, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so. Well, we, we heard this, we had that interview with the creators behind Lego uh, just a couple weeks before Visions Volume 1 came out. And yes, we were actually, yes. we were in California on a trip to Napa, the two of us, when we did this interview with the Lego makers and they said, breadth of play. And we used it throughout the entire trip. It was the phrase of the trip. <laughs> it was the breadth of, of the play. Trip. And so the <laughs> breadth of play now is sprinkled into a lot of our conversations. Again, just like I wanted to like reset with the topic yeah. of Master and Apprentice, I wanted to reset with Breath of Play because Visions is the perfect example mm -hmm. for Breath of Play. The vision's strength is in its ability to exist within the breadth of play. Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay, I'm done. <laughs> so I'm just saying the words. Okay. I feel like Breath of Play is uh, um, a, our current favorite way of talking about the sandbox of Star Wars. You hear a lot of creators talk about like, oh, I just get to play in the, in the I'm sandbox. I'm so done with the sandbox. I hate Let's the Let's say Breath of Put Play. Put the lid on the sandbox. I, I'm so over that Cover metaphor. it up. Cover it up. The season is over. <laughs> <laughs> we took a sand to the beach. Not here. Yes, it's, it's over. <laughs> I I get why they use it. It's a fine, it's an apt metaphor, but um, the time is now for Breath of Play. And mm -hmm. that is Visions and Lego too, but all of Star Wars, but Visions and Lego explore it so well. Uh, but but today we're just talking about Visions. So. so let's just start. I think we touched on this in the beginning of the episode a little bit about the order choices. And I want to touch on something that we just didn't cover. And I just can't imagine what it's like Getting these nine episodes, these nine short stories, and every one of them is amazing. And then you have them all out on the table. And which order do you present them in, right? We talked about Sith and how that's the perfect beginning. But I think it's interesting to think about how Ao's song is also the perfect ending and how these two things are bookmarked um, or bookended and how this volume really does instill a lot of hope, maybe more so than volume one ever did. Because the ending of Akakiri, which is the ending of volume one, if you remember that short, ends on a really ominous, dark tone. So very, ominous. very ominous. And it was such an interesting way to end that volume. But this time we end on such a hopeful note. And I think that was the right choice because that is fully the North Star of this, as we've talked about, as we talked about before, right? Again, when we talk about the breadth of play, Visions is able to tell a number of stories outside of the usual genre of Star Wars. And I think this is where I wanted to talk about Screecher's Reach being a ghost story. Screecher's Reach is in my top three too, if you're keeping track. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like it reminded me a lot of Akakiri, which actually was my favorite one from volume one. And the one I returned to the most, I actually watch it all the time. And I feel like it, it feels so different to explore this like concept of a ghost story, a Celtic story. But something we've been talking about this entire time is how these creators were so willing and able to lean into their, what they know best in their culture. I feel like Cartoon Saloon leaning on Celtic mythology. Um, it's something that's not really touched that much in Star Wars mythos. It is touched some bits, like you can dig into that, but not in this way, because I think even the director talked about how this was inspired by the, the story of the Banshee. I just think the ability to 
explore these things. Like getting a Star Wars ghost story is very rare. I can think off the top of my head some of them. They exist in comics. And sometimes the scary horror elements are brought in into animation, into like the core animation of Star Wars, like Clone Wars and honestly Clone Wars in a lot of ways. (laughs) Brain invaders, anyone? (laughs) I've just recently watched it. It's very (laughs) top of my Yeah. And I think that that is the reason why they're able to explore that is because actually Clone Wars has a very, there's a lot of breadth of play ability, right? Clone Wars is able to tell a bunch of different stories and a bunch of different arcs and they got weird with a lot of them and, and (laughs) which we love, right? We love that they got weird. So the fact that Visions was able to do the same thing and lean into things that they know, um, like Screechers Reach leans into the ghost story. Ar- Ardman with I Am Your Mother leads into the comedy and the playfulness. And that's what they know too. And Ardman is so like, so British. <laughs> <laughs> and the humor is so British because it is so playful. And like, if you spend uh, 30 minutes watching anything on like Britbox or in the UK, the comedy is very similar to Ardman is all I'm going to say. <laughs> like, it's just, it works. And I, I say that very affectionately. And I love that they were going to, that they leaned into that because humor and playfulness is a core of Star Wars too. And that, I, I think that they just really underlined it, emphasized it and went for it. And that is like what they're able to exist within because that's what they know. I don't know. And then also, sorry, I'm monologuing here, but the spy dancer then goes into knowing what or like leaning into what they know, which is their French history. And so many of these cultures obviously do this with leaning into history, but the French history here, like there's nothing forcey about it. And the creators were talking about how they were surprised that this was, um, that this went through that Lucasfilm was like, yes, do this one. (laughs) And I think that it just feels like, they're, they were given that ability to lean into things and stories that they really wanted to tell that just happens to exist within Star Wars, but like still goes back to that original point of like that Star Wars feeling in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's a really good way that you described it with that phrase of lean in. I think that's something that volume two has really excelled at is leaning into that genre and leaning into the culture that uh, the country that the short is coming from, uh, like with Bandits of Galak, really leaning into the design element that is very Indian and and yeah, leaning into Celtic mythology. I am your mother uh, with the humor and the spy dancer. It's It's almost like if you had to if you didn't know where all of these shorts came from, you could pretty easily, I think, match which country created them. And there's something so distinctive about that Mm -hmm. and so lovely when thinking about all of these different shorts and what they represent for the studios that created them and the ways that they approach Star Wars. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, And I... I think that's interesting to think about is if I would be able to think about where these, what countries produced these shorts in retrospect. Some of them, I think I'd have a little hard time with it, but I think I could choose some of them. I think we'd pass. Um, like if it was a great. Yeah, I, I think, think we'd, we'd pass. pass. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I think the, the the pit might like throw me. That's a, That was like a trick question, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. I think... I think because of the story and it feels very 2020 America, the social unrest, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think that feels very distinct in the pit. So I think if I was going, 
based off of visuals, I wouldn't be able like again, trick question. Cause yeah, it's, that's true. it's both. Yeah. So it's interesting. I I do think that we'd pass though. You're right. <laughs> I think something also in terms of breadth of play that we haven't really touched upon, which is like really weird for us, is we haven't really talked about like the force and the way that like mm-hmm. the force is used in visions and something that visions really gets to do, which really is the definition of breadth of play, is the fact that it gets to play across the binary of light and dark side and like redefine it and make it so that it's not so like, you know, once you go down this dark path forever will dominate your destiny. Like that's not really something that is brought up in in this and neither was it brought up in volume one. Instead, it's acknowledged, a lot of it is acknowledging the darkness within yourself and like choosing the light. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that Star Wars doesn't do that. It just really, there is a hard line, at least in like main Star Wars when we talk, when we're talking about like the films that is very, that I wish was more exploratory, like it is in visions about these like concepts, right? And in a lot of ways, I think Star Wars films are effective because of that, like they do stay on that binary of light and dark because it is very clear. But I get, I like that we have this ability to explore that here. And I'm really talking about more, like the the short Sith, I think, throws a little bit of what we know about like dark side users on its head with having a character who used to be a dark side user. And you're not really sure, at least in the beginning of like where her art stands, I guess, when it comes to the light side and the dark side. Like I, I think we talked about this with the color theory, right? About how the colors are a little out of the norm of what we're used to in terms of what represents dark and light. Anyway, all that said... I like that we get to play in the sandbox of. <laughs> I thought <laughs> of we were. We put a lid on the sandbox. Okay, okay, all right. I opened it up just for like a second. No, put it on. <laughs> okay, put the okay, shovel okay. back. Forget I said it. Forget I said it. <laughs> well, I think it's forgotten. It's stricken from the record. Uh, <laughs> even in uh, like Journey to the Dark Head and Owl's Song, they really play with. Um, journey to the dark head you know it kind of fits that journey to the dark head is the middle kind of the middle story in this lineup because it i think even more than sith and Aou's song you know and that's like the beginning and end huh okay um the way that the colors of the the two heads (laughs) in this temple the light side and the dark side and the way that they're all the colors kind of merge uh as the battle between tool and the sith master goes on i think is a great representation of that you know light side and dark side dichotomy you have to have both and even something that i thought was a great detail in journey to the dark head was you know there's the light side dark side head and when the the lights the colors are first activated the the light side head is it has like the blue on top and the red on the bottom of the face and then the dark side head is the opposite but once the like battle continues on and it kind of reaches the climax those colors like shift so the light side head has the the red dark side color on top and the blue on bottom and they kind of merge more in the middle. I thought that was like a great visual detail that they included in in that short. And then in Alu's song, of course, we see that the the dark side Kyber is red in nature, but then we see her completely change the whole mountain to blue. But she she talks to the dark side like she's able to it reminded me a lot of the concept of like bleeding the kyber crystal and that's kind of what she's able to do but the opposite of healing it and uh, it's through that song that exploration of the force in that way that she's able to 
to heal like an entire mountain and to switch that color from red to blue. And I think that if Awu, if we saw her story continued, uh, I think we would see her have kind of a greater understanding of both the dark side and the light side as it's represented in something like a kyber crystal. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think to kind of wrap up our discussion a little bit of like the force, you had put in this comment, this quote from uh, the director, one of the directors from In the Stars, talking about the force. And and of course, the exploration of the force in that short was so beautiful as it's the mother's strength, right? And he said, it's a reflection of who we are. The connection to the force is the connection to our own memories, our own roots. And I thought that was such a great way to talk about it and really feels like it encapsulates Star Wars in a lot of ways because, uh, right, like our the force being our memories and our roots and the way that we see the force learned uh, taught is in relation to like important relationships that our characters have in Star Wars and trials and tribulations and successes and failures that they're going through on their story. And I don't know, that feels like a, a really, I don't know, like a good thesis statement kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like the force in a lot of stories and in Star Wars reinforces the character's own journey. And I love that quote. It actually made me tear up a little bit. The yeah. Ref- I'll, I'll read it again. It's a reflection of who we are. The connection to the force is a connection to our own memories, our own roots. And I think if Star Wars is anything, at least core film Star Wars, it's the story of family. And when Luke finds the force and his ability to use the force, he also finds his family, right? And I think if we want to like stick with that, that is said by the director of In the Stars. That's exactly what's happening with those two sisters, right? They're finding each other. They're finding the strength of their mother. They're finding the strength through the hope that they feel. And I feel like we feel that whenever we watch Star Wars and it tells that kind of story, right? Yeah. So Kaylin, if we're at the end of this, what are your top Don't three? We've been me. dancing around. I already wrote mine down. I know. Okay. Okay. It's Awu's song, The Pit. And honestly, I think through our discussion, I think it's In the Stars. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I think that I like In the Stars more through our discussion. Not saying that I didn't like it. It's probably like my number four, but it doesn't make my top three. (laughs) But I like it. It moved up. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You were like, well. (laughs) Well, it's just really good. Everything is really good. Again, I will say it again. Volume two is stronger than volume one. Mm -hmm. I feel a lot more connection to these stories than I did in volume one. And I loved volume one. And I can't believe I'm saying that, you know? Yeah. So my top is number one, The Pit. Number two, Screechers Reach. Number three, Owl's Song. When I saw Screechers Reach, I don't think I've said this yet, ending like really got me. And I was like sobbing. I I think it's something with the music and the choral singers and things like that. It just really, really got me in this like choice that she makes for a better – it's a better life that she feels such a connection to but then also makes a sacrifice. Sacrifices always get me. They just really do always Mm -hmm. get me. So yeah, really loved those and – it's all the absolute gem. Those are my top three. Anything else you want to say about visions, Caitlin? I don't think so. I think, well, I know we haven't covered everything. Everything. Uh, Yeah. You know, there are a lot of small details and moments in each of these shorts that were so special. And we took a lot of notes actually on all of them, (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed our kind of broader thematic discussion of 
volume two and would really truly love to know your thoughts on volume two and what you took away from it, what your top three are or anything else you'd like to tell us about your experience watching it. Uh, so please tell us. You can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all good places to find us. And if you have a couple seconds, we would love if you went and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps other people find the show. Also, please feel free to screenshot you listening to the show in real time, share it on your favorite platform, and we will reshare it. If you tag us, we will reshare it as as well. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Aubrey, Brad, Kelly, Danny, Christina, Rachel, Tim, Tom, James, Allison, Jeff, Kate, Mason, and Sophia, Catherine, Erica, Maggie, King, Olivia, Chuck, Anna, Kelly, Colin, Chris, and Stefan. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.